Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome Ad Nauseam listeners to episode 21 of our little podcast. My name is David Noe. As always, I'm here with my co-host Jeff Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. The sun is shining. It's beautiful. It's nice here in Michigan, isn't it? It is. It's chilly, but it, it's uh, it's bright. Are we going to say the vomitorium is balmy? <laughs> <laughs> I think we almost have to now, don't we? Yeah, it's become a little bit of a running gag. <laughs> You got our shout out this week, don't you? I do. Our shout out this week goes to uh, Joel Foster, who comes to us from Lexington, Kentucky. He Hello, some, Joel. He said some nice things about the podcast, had some questions. Yes. Yeah. And uh, he wanted to know specifically about Virgil's eclogues, which is the topic for today. So it's good that we're shouting out to him today. Right. Kentucky, it's also perfect for this episode. That's, I mean, that's horse country. You're right. Yes. The uh, Kentucky State Horse Park is there. Yes. They know all about rolling hills, green landscapes, and things of that sort. That's right. Have you been to the Kentucky Horse Park? I have. It's gorgeous. Yes. I was, I was taken there as a child on a family vacation. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's great. Yes. So perfect for the bucolic nature of our topic today. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, we have an opening quote, and I believe you're going to handle it for us. This comes from the Italian scholar G.B. Jean-Biagio Conte. We've cited him before, brilliant man, and his work Latin Literature from 1987. He says, quote, all of Virgil's life, as far as we know it, is extraordinarily lacking in external events and is centered instead on unremitting toil over poetry. Hmm. I mean, do you think there's there's truth in that, that that's all that Virgil did? So far as I can tell, <laughs> yes. Uh, there's another book I do not recommend, and it's called The Immense Majesty. You may have read it in grad school. I don't remember it's that It's a one. history book by a man named Thomas Africa. Okay. Uh, audience run from it screaming. <laughs> but he tries to find, as many people did, in Virgil's poetry... Uh, biographical references. Oh, yeah. Or autobiographical references, I should say. He tries to add in some of those external events, but I think Conte's right. Extraordinarily lacking in external events, centered instead on unremitting toil over poetry. Now, who would find that attractive? Who would find that attractive? That kind of life. That life? Unremitting uh, toil over poetry. Um, boy, not many people that I can no, think of. No, <laughs> no. Supposedly Virgil wrote 10 lines of the Aeneid per day. That's it. Yeah. I remember hearing those, kind, those kinds of anecdotes that right. he would compose a number of lines and then he would polish it down to right. this jewel yes. uh, of, a, of a handful of lines. And it seems to me that the only person who would do such a thing is a person whose eye is on posterity. Ah, He's not thinking really at all about his present circumstances. He's thinking about the glory that is to come if he succeeds in this poetic task. Well, his poetry becomes the monument by which he'll be remembered forever. Correct. Yes. In, In comparison with which daily events, not interesting to him, not engaging. So, Jeff, what are we going to give our audience today in particular? Why should they listen to this episode? Well, when people think Virgil, uh, if they know about Virgil, they usually think about his Aeneid, uh, which we will surely cover at some point. Before we get to the Aeneid, uh, we thought it would be interesting to kind of go behind the scenes, behind the music, as okay. it were, to kind of the nitty gritty. That's right. Um, even though it's, it seems fairly clear we don't know much about Virgil's own life. But this is like if the Aeneid is Virgil's... Uh, maybe third album, mm-hmm. you know, the one that breaks through. Right. Uh, the uh, the Eclogues, which we're talking about today. Yes. It's his, it's his debut album. Right. And I think certainly compared to the Aeneid, a neglected part of his catalog, but uh, important. 
Could one say that one can't really understand the Aeneid unless one has looked at the eclogues and the Georgics? I think there's some truth to that. Okay. I, I think I mean they're very different kinds of poetry. I mean, it's the it, you know, as we'll see, it's the same meter. It's a dactylic hexameter. But I think a lot of this, the 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 themes, the way he talks about Rome and kind of the the, the mythology of Rome, is certainly carries over into the Aeneid. Yeah, the political anticipation, yes. right, as he's building up. So we need to talk a little bit then about Virgil's life to set the stage for Eclogue 1. Now, there are, there are 10 Eclogues altogether. Today, we're going to be just looking at the first one. And so Virgil's life, briefly, born in Mantua, which is northern Italy. Have you uh, been there? Have you been there? I have not been to Mantua. I would love to I would to love go to. There. I think they, there's a, they have a statue of Virgil. They do. Remember, remember when we went to Milan? Yes. This was in 2016. Yep. I flew into Milan, and uh, I had never been there. I had never seen the cathedral. Uh, we went to the opera house. That yes. was a little snoozy, I'll be honest. La Scala. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Didn't that, enjoy that? <laughs> that's a little snoozy. That's as close as I've ever gotten to Virgil's uh, hometown, his birthplace. It's northeast of there, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, it's still it's still even further north than Milan. Yes. Okay, I, I can't picture it on the yeah, map. It's up, uh, yeah, northeast. Okay. And so we have um, Mantua where he was born, October 15, 70 BC. Mm-hmm. Now, 70, those were troubled times, weren't they? Right. The Republic, you know, soon to become an empire. It's wheezing, It's right? wheezing. Yeah. Right? So we're, we're getting into, into kind of the, the heyday of Julius Caesar and Marius and Sulla. It's, uh, it's difficult times. That's right. Virgil, like any other young man of his age, right, he had a, a father who had sufficient resources, kind of a... Um, a country gentleman, a country farmer, had sufficient resources to get Virgil some schooling. That's right. So he goes off to Rome. He goes off to Naples. The sources, the ancient sources, uh, say that he studied some Epicureanism, which, as our audience knows, is the maximizing of pleasure, like listening to this podcast, the minimizing of pain. That's right. Listening to other podcasts. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) He studied Epicureanism and Stoicism in Rome and Naples. And then something really shocking happened, right, in uh, about 41 B.C. Mm-hmm. What, what, uh, what's going on then historically, Jeff? Can you set the stage so a little this, bit? This would be three years after Caesar's murder, a couple years after uh, Cicero's death. The, the Republic is, is in chaos. You have the, the vying camps of, of Octavian and Mark Antony, and they have their prescription lists, and they're going after, they're going after each other's enemies, and often that would involve um, confiscating land taking right. property, and um, and getting cash for the cause. And this is what happened to Virgil, the ancient sources tell us, and it's what's clearly reflected in the first eclogue. After uh, Augustus besieged, he was Octavian at the time, besieged the city of Perugia, right? Yeah. The Perugian War, a place we've both been. That's right. Uh, besieged the city of Perugia and leveled it and refounded it in his own name. Then he needed a place to settle his veterans, because there's a limited amount of cash, right? You can't just keep minting coins and handing it out. So you give these veteran soldiers property. Well, you have to take it away from someone before you can give it to your veterans. Uh-huh. So this is the, the time where the, the Republic is, is rapidly disintegrating. And um, these generals like, like Caesar, like Antony, like Octavian, realize that keeping your troops happy and loyal to you is the is the path to victory. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So then in about 41, he has his land confiscated around Mantua, and now he's an educated young man. I guess he's, uh, he's about 30, so he's in the prime of his life now. And uh, he's looking around for a patron, some, some way to make a living and to develop his poetry. So in 
39, he publishes the work we're looking at today, the Eclogs. This is in the year 39 he right. publishes. And so, uh, yeah, 30, 31 years old, kind of when a, a Roman man of his status and class would kind of begin public life. Yeah, making right? a career choice. Exactly right. So uh, he, he publishes these poems. He spends um, the next 10 years, apparently, working on the four books of his Georgics. Right, which agricultural is, poems. Yes, right. So, I mean, a lot of the, covering a lot of the same thematic territory as uh, as the eclogues, but also, um, I mean, distinct. And including a little bit of a recusatio, a term we talked about in our Ovid episode, which is, I'm not ready to write epic poetry mm. yet. I'm still going to deal with these minor themes. And in fact, Conti says in his work, Latin Literature, that the idea that a person builds up to their magnum opus, uh, Virgil is the originator of that idea. Is that right? Yeah, prior, Conti says that? Yeah, Conti says okay. that. So, so prior to Virgil... It wasn't expected that your early works be small and then your final work be the capstone. Um, there was no literary expectation of that sort. That's so, my understanding. So my, my album uh, metaphor, I think, exactly. holds, right? So you, you, those, those one-hit wonders that come out of the gate that are never able to kind of live up to their, their, first, uh, their first output. They're uh, doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. That's right. Exactly. So the demo tape... Right. Yes. The demo tape is typically, uh, can we say demo tape? That really dates us, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> that, that's typically underproduced, yes. right? You, the, the sound isn't smooth. It isn't clear. But then you build up to something really great. And when you're selling platinum, then people go back and dig through your archive. The back catalog, exactly. right. Exactly. And so. they, they find, oh, you know, there were glimpses and, and gleams of genius here, but he didn't really have the resources. Right. Right, and so just like a band that would need a, this also dates us, needs a record company to believe in them. What's a record company? <laughs> Nobody knows anymore. You know, the idea that the, a record company would foster a band and say, okay, you got your freshman, your sophomore offering, and then you, know, you build up to your, your work of greatness. Mm. Virgil needed a patron who also believed in him. Yes, and I think we can see a definite development in skill if we just look at volume of output. So what do you mean by that? Well, it took 10 years to write the four books of the Georgics, which is just over 2,000 lines of poetry, mm -hmm. right? So that was 39 to 29. It's very easy to remember Virgil's dates of publication, 39, 29, 19. Every 10 years, he releases a new album, right? Yeah. But it took 10 years to write the four books of the Georgics. In the next 10 years, from 29 till his death in 19, he writes the entire Aeneid. So he's cranking it up. Yes, just under 10,000 lines distributed into 12 books. But even if you do the the math, you, you know, how many lines is he doing per day over that? Yes. I mean, I think that's where kind of these anecdotes come from, that he's he's just working, he's polishing you know, each line, each hexameter as a, a precious thing. You might say that his life was extraordinarily lacking in external events. You might say that. Unremitting toil over poetry. Did, friends, you, just, did you just come up with that? <laughs> friends would say, hey, Virgil, you want to go grab a beer? He said, I'm sorry. No, my life is lacking in external events. I can't do that. I don't think he was a lot of fun You're to not going to bash Virgil, are you? No, well, come I mean, on. I, I, I get some Virgil bashing coming up. Well, You've read book four of the Aeneid, right? Of I mean, course. Yeah. Yes. You've taught it a thousand times. Yes. And beautiful great stuff. Yeah. But there are there are a lot of things about Virgil that I don't care for. We'll get to really? that. Really? I've got a lot of things to say. Okay. <laughs> and then, Jeff, what happened to him in 19, long about September, something I guess you're happy about. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that he died? Yes. Oh, do you want to mention this, this detail about when he reads the Georgics to Augustus? Oh, yes. I, I'm not familiar with this episode. Where does this come from? Well, this has been captured in art on several occasions. There's, I can't remember who it is. One of our listeners can send us an email and we'll put it in the show notes um, if they identify it. But what happened was 
Augustus was returning from one of his military campaigns in Campania, and he stopped off to visit Virgil at a place called Attila and uh, read to him a portion of the Georgics. Hmm. Augustus really loved it. Later on, um, he read to him a portion of the Aeneid, at which time Augustus fainted, the story goes. Oh, and yes. And it's this that's captured uh, on canvas. Augustus fainting as uh, Virgil reads to him a portion of the Aeneid because he was so overwhelmed by the beauty of the poetry. You know, some people are, Jeff. Some, well, some I, people like Virgil. <laughs> Augustus has also famously had kind of a weak constitution. It could have been, the, it could have been his lunch that he ate. Fair enough. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, in the year 19, September 21, which... Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that Augustus's birthday? So if that's if that's right, that's suspicious. Yeah, uh, very to, suspicious. Right. It's also the the fall equinox. In Do you have all the dates of the <laughs> Roman emperor's birthdays memorized? No, you know, I'm, I know that Augustus was born uh, late September. So I, that, something about that date jumps out at me. So okay, I, you know, fall equinox. You have Persephone descending into the underworld. It's almost a little too perfect. It is a little too perfect. Right. So so I don't he know. dies in Brindisium. Yes. And he was going to, or he was on his way back from Greece? If I remember correctly, he was headed off to Greece, to Dyrrhachium. He dies there in Brindisium. They bury him in Naples. Do we know know what he died of, or is that? No. No? Okay. Nope. Um, It could have been really anything, I suppose. But he would have been, what, what, around 50. Around 50, 50, yeah. yeah. A life too short, cut short. Much too short. He was buried, buried in Naples. Yes. Okay. And there's this wonderful medieval legend that uh, the Apostle Paul, whom, as uh, listeners might remember, landed right there near Naples on his way to Rome and then walked the Via Appia north to Rome. When he landed in Naples, this medieval legend says he went to the tomb of, of uh, Virgil, which was there, and he wept at the tomb of Virgil. Why, why, did this, why did this move him to tears? Well, because he regretted he had been too late to introduce Virgil to Christ. I see. So it wasn't that he was a big fan of the Aeneid. No, because yeah. nobody is, remember? <laughs> <laughs> it's an apocryphal story, no right. doubt. But I think it, it's beautiful in the way that it captures the influence Virgil has had on the West and on Christianity in particular. Yes. And, and in a future episode... Christian history has this really interesting Nachleben. Can I that's use right. that term? Yes, it's German. German yep. does, yeah, afterlife. Right. Um, and he's, he kind of survives as this like, pious pagan. Yes, he's a prophet, of course, essential to the career of Dante. Yes. And uh, enshrined in the Sistine Chapel, at least his Sibyl is, the Cumaean Sibyl, is there in the Sistine Chapel because of this very reason. Yes, and the, and the fourth eclogue is, is famous for it having believed to be uh, Virgil having this prophecy of the birth of Christ. Correct. Yep. Many passages of which are very much like the book of Isaiah. Yes, but that's for a later episode. Oh, fine. I guess we'll get to that later. Okay, uh, but let's get down to let's get down to brass tacks, as they say. We're talking about pastoral poetry, correct? Today. Yes, and I believe you have a quote that can uh, set this up nicely. Yes, this is from a scholar named D. E. W. Wormel. We were talking before about how scholars need initials rather than actual first names. <laughs> this guy has three. It's much more impressive. D. E. W. Okay. D. E. W. Wormel. So this is from a work called uh, Studies in Latin Literature, Virgil. It's from 1969, and his essay is is the originality of the eclogues. Okay. So he says, in general, pastoral, meaning pastoral poetry, is anchored in a timeless present in the long summer day, which may be interminable, and it depicts a world populated by shepherds with their flocks and herds and by the familiar deities of the countryside, an idyllic landscape unmarred by war or violence or struggle, clouded only by the unhappiness which human relationships bring by their lover's rival of his jealousy, and by the distant darkness of death. Virgil chooses to end half his eclogues with the falling shades of night. 
So, I mean, one of the things that strikes me as, as you read that quote, um, I think even more so than the Greeks, uh, the, the Romans, and this probably comes from kind of their ancient kind of indigenous Italic culture, that the countryside was even much more God-haunted than even the, the Greeks would talk about. Correct. There's a kind of animism where every rock and tree is alive. Yes, I like to say that to my students all the time, yeah. right? Every rock, every tree, the uh, wooded glen, you walk into this clearing in the woods and sunlight is streaming through the top. It seems like a holy place. Exactly, exactly right. So where the, the Greeks might talk about you know, encountering Pan out in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the forest or uh, an early version of Hermes out in Arcadia, there is that kind of the idealization of, of the countryside as, as a place where you, you're much more prone to kind of meet divinity than you are in the city. Absolutely. And of course, uh, a point that sometimes is lost is that although the, the Greeks and the Romans had the same pantheon of Olympic gods, many of the Italian gods had separate identities until poets like Virgil collapsed the two together. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Jupiter and Zeus, you know, they were originally two different gods, obviously. It was only individuals like Virgil and Ovid who borrow from Greek capital in order to make them the same. Right, and even the way that, um, you know, the Romans would go on to you know, worship their gods like like Jupiter and Juno and Minerva in their temples, they worship them in, in these triads, mm-hmm. um, which is reflective of kind of this kind of pre-Roman um, pantheon. Yes, the dozens of different cultures that inhabited the Italian peninsula before the Romans drove them all out. Exactly. So there is this romanticizing then of country life versus urban life. Yes. Rome by this time is massive, the largest city in the world in terms of population. And yet everyone who lives inside of it has an idealistic, romantic notion of what it would be like to be in the country. Yeah, I think it's why people go camping. Exactly. Right. And I think it's also... And it's why I don't go camping, (laughs) because I was raised on a farm, so... Yeah, exactly, right, right. But I think also embedded in this is that, you know, if you look at, you know, Greek and Roman mythology, really any mythology around the world... Kind of the idea of where the world began, when the world was was perfect, it's invariably pure nature. Right. It's a garden, right? And so I think that's the the idea. If you go out in, into nature, into the countryside, one of the benefits is you get a little taste of how it's supposed to be. Without the clutter and the corruption of human life. Right. Human life is nasty and dirty, and it's concentrated in the city. That's the idea. Yeah. On the, on the one hand... Uh, certainly the Romans would have celebrated their inventiveness, right? I mean, the plumbing alone, right, is, is, is divine. Here's a vote for plumbing. But yeah, right. But the idea that, you know, to build these inventions and these walls and these machines and these buildings is to be like a, a god in some sense. Yes. But it's also counterfeit. Correct. Yeah. So, Jeff, the most famous pastoral poem in all of literature is Psalm 23. I would agree with that. Which, yes. of course, is not even uh, a Western poem. It's an ancient Near Eastern poem written by a, uh, a Hebrew boy, right? The, the psalmist, King David. Mm-hmm. And in that poem, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord himself uh, fills the role of the shepherd. Yes, and this would be almost nearly a thousand years before Virgil. Yes, yeah, and all of the themes are already present there, right? He leads me beside still waters, he feeds me, he clothes me, he cares for me. Whatever a shepherd does for a sheep, you know, the Lord in that very famous poem does for the psalmist. And again, I think there's kind of echoes of Eden in that. Definitely. Yeah. But this eclogue of Virgil is a little bit different because there's more than one voice. 
There are, in fact, two voices in the first eclogue. Now, there's a term for this, isn't it? Yes, it's called amabian. Amabian. Yeah, it's a Greek <laughs> term, and uh, you've got a definition for us, don't you, Jeff? Yes, an amabian, a poetic form in which two characters chant alternate lines, couplets, or stanzas in competition or debate with one another. Hmm. Where's that from? This is from, that's from the Oxford Dictionary of Literary Terms. So it's like a rap battle. Yes, exactly. Now, in the eclogue, the one we're going to talk about, it's not really a, it's not really a competition. No. No, but... It, it does. These these uh, the Amabians often kind of take on that quality. They're trying to outdo each other. Yes, and in later eclogues, it's an actual competition with stakes. That is, you can win a goat or a cup or some other kind of prize if the audience deems your poem better. What would you take, the cup or the goat? I would take the goat. <laughs> <laughs> and you, Jeff, would you take the goat? I, I think I would take the goat as well. Okay. Yeah. That settles it. We just move on. There we go. <laughs> so where does the term uh, eclogue or bucolic come from? Well, eclogue means something like like a selection. Yes. Right? It's, a, like, it's almost like, it's almost um, self-deprecating. Like, oh, this is, it's a little piece of something. A snippet. A snippet. Correct. Yes. Right. And it's a very broad general term. And it's not the term that was originally given to these poems. These poems originally had the term bucolics. Uh, cowie. Cow, yes, something related to cows, cowboy songs, in fact. Yes. That's why the, the title of this episode is what it is, right? So it's from a Greek word, bukalikos, an adjective that means a rustic pastoral song in particular. And this brings us to the very important individual, Theocritus. Who, now, who is Theocritus? So why does Theoc- he matter? Pardon? Why does he matter? Oh, <laughs> Theocritus <laughs> was an Alexandrian poet. So he was at Alexandria, the city founded by Alexander, northern Egypt, and his date of uh, greatest influence, around 280 B.C. So this is still an incredible distance of time. Definitely. Right. But yeah. this, I mean, what's happening uh, in Virgil's era, this, this is, uh, you have lots of poets kind of looking back to these Alexandrian poets, Callimachus, mm-hmm. for example, and kind of uh, taking their cue from them and uh, in some ways almost redoing, doing cover songs. Definitely. Of, uh, in Latin, of course. This is the Roman appropriation of all of Greek lit. Yes. And it was begun, as you said, by uh, people who were looking at Callimachus. So poets like... Catullus, the so-called Neoteroi, as Cicero deems them, you know, the, the young pups or something like that for Neoteroi, they're reading over Greek literature and they're saying, how can we cover this in Latin? Yeah. And it's also the era of, um, we were talking about, you know, Virgil polishing his lines. This is the era of the um, big book, big evil, mega biblon, mega cacon, right? right. Yes. Uh, a quote from Callimachus. Yes. Which is, the smaller and more delicate and refined the poetry, the better. Yes. So another important term here um, is the the labor limai, the work of the file or, you know, devotion to your eraser is the idea. It's it's not a good poem if you haven't rubbed out a lot of lines. Yeah, yeah. So Theocritus wrote these idyls, that is, these pastoral poems, and he was originally from Syracuse in the island of Sicily, but then like all literary talent, he gravitated to Alexandria because that's where the Ptolemies were. The dynasty who inherited that chunk of the, of the kingdom of Alexander. Correct. And all of its wealth as well. Yes. Uh, Out of which uh, Cleopatra will come. Exactly. From. Ancient yeah. ancestor of Cleopatra. So Theocritus is patronized by the Ptolemies. They pay his bills. And Theocritian themes, which then appear in Virgil, are the beautiful landscape, the uh, escape from urban life, the rustic pleasures and the simplicity of agriculture, uh, elaborate and delicate descriptions, the comma tragic refashioning of ancient myths. That's my favorite. You like that? I like that part. Yeah. yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, one of the myths that was 
uh, tragic in origin, but that Theocritus uh, turns into a bit of a comedy. Well, we get this really interesting take on the on the Cyclops from um, from the Odyssey, uh, Polyphemus. Yeah, and Cyclops has a lover, right? Yes. Uh, he's, it, he's, it, one of the things I like about it, it's very Shrekian. <laughs> yeah. That's how I picture it. I, I remember it, uh, doing this poem in, or discussing this poem in graduate school, and we were discussing uh, that Polyphemus is described here as, as, you could read the Greek as he has kind of one, just one large nostril. Right. right? So he's just kind of grotesque, but he's also, he's also this kind of sensitive lover. You want to pity him. Yes, exactly. He's so ugly and so desperate, you're kind of drawn to him a little bit in pity. Yes. So do you want to read a bit of, uh, it's, it's Idle 13? Yeah, uh, I'd like you to, please. Okay. This is the Cholmley translation. The Cholmley translation, yes. Yeah. This, is, this is great stuff. Um, all right, it goes, Galatea, who is Polyphemus's uh, would-be lover. Here, and she's right? a sea nymph, sea right? nymph Galatea. Right? Mentioned in our eclogue for today. Um, Galatea is pelting your flock with apples, Polyphemus. She says the goat herd is a laggard lover, and you do not glance at her. Oh, hard, hard that you are, but still you sit at your sweet piping. Ah, see, again, she is pelting your dog. Lots of pelting. Throwing things at your dog. <laughs> that follows you. Oh, you say lots of pelting. There's lots of pelting. Yes, of course. I mean, she's pelting sheep. She's pelting dogs, right? Again, ah, see, again, she's pelting your dog. That follows you to watch your sheep. He barks as he looks into the brine. And now the beautiful waves that softly splash reveal him as he runs upon the shore. That's kind of a throwaway detail, isn't it? We we get the description of the dog barking in the brine. Barking in the brine. Yeah. Yes. And it's, it, is, it is a little strange. Yeah. Uh, take heed that he leap not on the maiden's limbs as she rises from the salt water. See that he rend not her lovely body. For truly to love, Polyphemus, many a time does foul seem fair. Huh. Yeah. So Polyphemus is in love. He's in love. Galatea, though, doesn't love him back. No, she's she's more interested in pelting things. She's and going after one of the one of the sheep herds, right? Yes, that, that's her interest. And so the comic setting in the pastoral countryside, it's the it's the environment for love and poetic competition. In uh, kind of the contemporary parlance, Polyphemus is in the he's in the friend zone. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So how might we summarize or, or really describe Theocritus's uh, uh, influence on Virgil? Right. Well, we've talked about some of the themes, but let's have Conte do that for us because okay. he does it so well. This is from his Latin literature. No single Virgilian eclogue stands in a one-to-one relation with a single Theocritian idyll. The presence of Theocritus has been resolved into a tissue of relations so complex that the new work is on a par with its model. In this sense, the Bucolics is truly the first text of Augustan literature. They already interpret its basic drive, which is to rework the Greek texts while treating them as classics. This isn't just Virgil's first work. I mean, Conti's arguing that this is where Augustan literature begins. Yes, this is the first work of all of uh, what went into, and when we say Augustan, it's Augustus, right? The adjective form of Augustus. Just yes. make sure the audience understands. He's setting the tone for... Ovid, for Tibullus, for Propertius, for every other poet who comes after. And it's this, reworking the Greek texts, treating them as classics. Today's episode is brought to you by Ratio Coffee, world-class pour-over coffee at the touch of a button. That's right, Dave. The good people at Ratio Coffee Portland, Oregon have come out with a gorgeous machine that is not only a complement to your kitchen decor, but brews a consistently delicious cup of coffee. You see, unlike most home coffee makers, this one has no burner. No burner? No burner. 
That means after your coffee is brewed to perfection, it doesn't sit on some lava-like scorch pad where all the flavor is slowly and painfully burned out of it. Instead, the Fibonacci head puts very hot water down through the cone filter into the heavy-duty double-walled carafe. This thing stays deliciously warm for five or six hours without any burn. I've been pulling all the weight here. Why don't you why don't you tell our lovely audience how to score one of these beauties? Okay, listen up at Nazafiles. Go to RatioCoffee.com and get a 15% exclusive discount on the Ratio 6. This amazing machine is all stainless steel and engineered to truly exacting specifications. Between now and March 20, 2021, go to RatioCoffee.com and enter special code ANCO. That's ANCO for 15% off the Ratio 6. ANCO, RatioCoffee.com. This episode of Odd Nauseam is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. For nearly 50 years, Hackett has been in the game of bringing affordable, high-quality, sharp-looking translations of classical works to the masses. Hackett's texts are noted for their broad appeal to both scholars and casual readers alike, working as well in the classroom as on the bedside table. Yeah, but too bad they don't offer any special discounts or anything, especially not for Ad Nauseam listeners. It's sad, almost melancholic, really. Makes me want to play my flute under a tree and blubber to shepherds about things. But they do offer a discount to ad nauseum listeners. They do. They do. Listen, if you're yanking my chain again... Just stop, Jeff. Ad nauseum listeners, you can save 20% and receive free shipping on any purchase from Hackett today. 20% off. Free shipping. That's right. It's all coming back to me. Listeners, to get this deal, all you have to do is go to hackettpublishing.com. Find the text you want, put them in your digital shopping cart, and enter AN2021, AN2021, in the box which asks for the coupon code. That's hackitpublishing.com, coupon code AN2021. Check it out today. So Dave, if I wanted to to learn ancient Greek, how might I go about doing that? Well, first of all, Jeff, you already know ancient Greek. I know, but even if I wanted to brush up on it. If you it, wanted though, to brush up, yes. do some brushing? Well, yes. I have a program just for you. It's called the Moss Method. Oh, tell us about that. Well, the Moss Method is 40 different lessons, 40 in each module. I took this work from the 1890s, Charles Melville Moss, an easy Greek reader, and I've developed videos and accompanying exercises for each lesson. It's a painless, inductive way of approaching the language. That sounds great. So if, it, if someone was interested, how might they go about finding this? Well, they would go to mossmethod.com, just like it sounds, mossmethod.com, or they could send me an email, dave at adnauseum.com, and I'd help get them enrolled. From time to time, we offer uh, discounts and sales, like the Black Friday, Cyber Monday we did. We'll be offering one of those again. We're hoping this Greek program will have moss appeal. <laughs> oh, man. Are we really going to end it there? I guess yeah, let's so. end it there. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Jeff, so the stage has been set now. We've looked at Virgil's life. We've talked a little bit about the Greek influences on him, Theocritus, also Hesiod, whom we didn't really mention, but we'll talk about him in a minute. Now we're ready to look at the first eclogue itself. Let's dig into it. So where do we begin? We should begin at the beginning, I think. I think so, too. Yes. The very first line of Virgil's poetry that has survived. Now, the, the listeners should know there, there are some other smaller poems attributed to Virgil, but the attribution is not secure. So this is what we know for sure was his first line of poetry. Right. So, Dave, why don't you read a little bit from these uh, from the Latin? Oh, I would love to. Here's how it goes. Tite retu patulai recubans sub tegmenefagi, silvestrem tenuimusam meditaris awena, nos patriae fines et dulcia linquimus arwa, nos patriam fugimus tu tite relentus in umbra, Formosam resonar raducesam arilida silvas. So this is where a dactylic hexameter. Yes. So this is that epic meter once again. Correct. Right. You know, I was just reading this morning an article, uh, I'm forgetting the scholar's name, talking about this, and uh, he was positing that the 
especially that first line is, is meant to is meant to mimic kind of piping sounds. There's lots oh. of tu 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 tu. So it's a titira tu patulai. All of those dentals right at the beginning. Titira tu patulai. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's easy to kind of miss some of that musicality when you're just kind of blitzing through it, and of course in a translation you lose it all. Definitely. Yeah. Right. Are you saying I was blitzing through it? No, I wasn't. I wasn't. We can talk about it later, though. Okay. <laughs> this I'm just pretending to be hurt. The second <laughs> line here, uh, we have tenui awena, which is the the phrase that's uh, translated as pipe, right? Woodland pipe, but it means hmm. slender piece of oat stalk. Oat stalk. Oat stalk, right? Awena means oats. Yeah. So. This was a a pan's pipe, right? This Mm. is a a number of different hollow tubes that had been assembled together, maybe seven of them all together. And you would blow on the top of it and you get different pitches, kind of like a wind chime. Yes. Do you remember Zamfir, the master of the pan flute? Do not. The the infomercial that was on every day all the time in the 1980s? Do not. No, you don't. Okay, sorry. (laughs) I bet one of our listeners will remember Zamfir. Please let us know if you I was busy slopping the hogs, as I recall. (laughs) So, Jeff, can you read us a translation of those first five lines? Yes, my pleasure. Um, Titiris, lying there, under the spreading beech tree cover, you study the woodland muse on slender shepherd's pipe. We are leaving the sweet fields and the frontiers of our country. We are fleeing our country. You, Titiris, idling in the shade, teach the woods to echo lovely amaryllis. Oh, that's beautiful. Whose translation is that? That is A.S. Klein's okay. from his uh, poetry and translation website with lots of good stuff on there. We should put that in the show notes also. Absolutely. Yep. Interesting story about Klein. I was reading about him a little bit. Uh, he's not a trained classicist. Um, his background is in mathematics and engineering, I think. Is that right? But he just translated a massive amount of this Greek and Latin poetry and quite successfully, I would say. And it's all, most of it is out there for free. It is quite, quite incredible. So pondering the woodland muse, Titurus, mm-hmm. Meliboyus, our two characters, Meliboyus and Titurus. Meliboyus begins and he sets up a little bit of the conflict here and the struggle. You lie there pondering the woodland muse, but what have I have to what have I had to do? says Meliboyus. I had to leave behind the borders of my fatherland and its sweet fields. I had to flee my countryside. While he, you sit around kind of idling, uh, piping your, your, your sweet tunes. That's right. And what does Titerus say in response to this? He says, um, again, Klein's translation, Oh, Meliboeus, a god has created this leisure for us. Since he'll always be a god to me, a gentle lamb from our fold will often drench his altar. Through him, my cattle roam, as you see, and I allow what I wish to be played by my rural reed. Hmm. Very impressive. So he calls the guy here, Adeus, in line six. He says, this god has created this leisure for me, and I'll always consider him a god. So from antiquity, who is this god? So are we going to give it away? We're going to give it away, yeah. So he's, he's talking about Augustus. Yes, that's right. Who at the time is still Octavian, right? Right. Hasn't yet taken the title of Augustus because it's pre-Battle of Actium. Remember the date of... It's 39. 39, When okay. these are published, yeah. right? So pre-Battle of Actium, he hasn't taken his title, but he is clearly going to be the winner in the big civil conflict. Yeah, I, I must be wonder. Uh, do you think that Virgil took any risk by doing that, that or was it fairly, I think very sec- little. fairly secure about what was going to happen? I think very little because uh, Lepidus is almost out of the picture. He's gone by 36. We're talking about the second triumvirate. And Mark Antony is mostly focused in the East. That's right. And Augustus, Octavian, I should say, uh, is in charge of Italy. Yes. And Virgil early on sees Octavian as the future and hitches his poetic wagon, you might say, 
to Octavian's star right here. Yeah. And again, it's, this is five years after the death of Caesar, of Julius Caesar. And we also have seen um, in that time uh, the deification of Caesar. Correct. So Caesar has become a god. There's a, a temple to him in the, in the forum. And so again, so that language is already out there. He's already, in, the, in this poem, Augustus is, is being described as a deus already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, while well, he's alive. Right. And it's a commonplace of pastoral poetry to identify a divinity in the landscape. And here, the surprising part is that the divinity is a living historical figure. See, now this is the, one of the things that, you know, I, I talked about other things I don't like about Virgil. His relationship to Augustus, it can, it can come off as, as uh, sucking up. You're going to say he's opportunistic, huh? He's opportunistic. Well, and, you know, the, the, one of the things that people, um, that readers often like about Virgil is that we can, we can locate him in a historical context. That helps us better understand his poetry, unlike a Homer, right, who just floats free from that. Um, and so that the Augustan program in Virgil's poetry in the Aeneid, uh, to my mind, it sometimes gets in the way of the story. Sometimes I, I, I wish Virgil was a little bit more out of time. I see. Yeah. As a counter to that, though, we have to have some sympathy for the circumstances he was in. This is the third generation now of civil war. And as we'll see later in the poem, his ancestral home was confiscated, right, by those land reappropriations. Which we see an echo of in this, this very poem. We do. There are clear allusions and references to it. And, uh, well, here in Titaris, right, this yeah. guy gave me back my property, right? And that's why I consider him a god. He it was who permitted me to let my cows roam again and uh, gives me the freedom to pursue poetry. Yeah, I'll buy that. Back to the poem, uh, to Eclogue 1. How does Meliboeus respond to Titarus here? Well, he says, Well, I don't begrudge you, rather I wonder at it. There's such endless trouble everywhere, over all the countryside. See, I drive my goats sadly. This one, Titarus, I can barely lead. Here in the dense hazels, just now she birthed twins. The hope of the flock, alas, on the bare stones. I'd have often recalled that this evil was prophesied to me by the oak struck by lightning, if my mind had not been dulled. But, Titarus, tell me then, who is this god of yours? The first, I don't know if it's the first, but the um, one of the first of many uh, descriptions of trees. I think it is the first. Yeah. It is the first, yes. So what's going on here? Why so many trees? Well, the eclogues are filled with trees, in fact. You know, every poem has a description of one or more different species of tree. And this is always bedeviled students of Latin uh, because <laughs> obviously trees are really significant to anyone's experience of life. You know, if you live in a forested or semi-forested area, trees are everywhere. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful, they're consistent, so on and so forth. They're massive on the landscape. And Virgil includes a lot of different uh, trees in his descriptions. I think the way to understand it is that, like Theocritus, it's part of the pastoral landscape. It's the, the trope or the medium to convey the theme. It's background. But it's also kind of a thread that is woven through the whole poem. Yeah, right? I think maybe that's a better way to put it. Okay. Uh, I'm not a painter, but I've, I've watched people paint. I've read about it a little bit. If you're going to paint a picture, you have to prep the canvas. You don't paint on a blank canvas, typically. I understand you fill in a lot of colors and then you put the, the foreground on it. Yeah, well, you've, you've watched Bob Ross, right? I have watched Bob <laughs> Ross. I'm working on his hairstyle, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what that's what Virgil's doing. Yeah. The, the trees form the backdrop, and they're the the constant thread. Uh, Gary Schmidt, our colleague Gary Schmidt, um, who writes all these wonderful children's books, uh, in one of them that I particularly liked, "Okay for Now," the running thread are the uh, bird paintings of James Audubon. So the Audubon paintings function as a as kind of a backdrop for the thread of the narrative. Yes, the yeah. plot. 
Right. Now, you mentioned uh, Gary Schmidt. I did. We, this is very exciting. We will have Gary Schmidt as a guest on the yes, podcast. In the month of February. Yes, talking about kind of classical narratives and, and, and story patterns and how they've been influential in his own writing. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so, going to be interesting. Yeah, so look for that. So already here, Jeff, in the eclogue, we have this little bit of mystery. We have this little bit of conflict. The one fellow, Meliboeus, he has a life of difficulty and abandonment of his property. Titurus is pursuing poetry and leisure. Yes. And Meliboeus says, who is this god? And Augustus' name never shows up in the no, poem, No, no. Right? Titurus doesn't really answer the question. He goes immediately to the theme of Rome. Yes. Yeah. And uh, But that kind of synonymous... Is that a word? Synonymity. Synonymity between Augustus and Rome and kind of also the growing idea of kind of the divinity, the kind of the Roma as a goddess is also on the ascent here. Yes. And so much so that in line 19, and I'd like to read a couple of the lines of the Latin, he doesn't even have to say uh, Rome immediately. He starts out with urbem, right? The city. Urbem quam dicunt Romam. There it is. Meliboi eputawi, stultus a Greek nostri similem cui saipasalemus, pastores oium teneros de pelera fetus. So again, Klein, Meliboi us foolishly, I thought the city they call Rome was like ours, to which we shepherds are often accustomed to drive the tender young lambs of our flocks. Hmm. Now this is interesting that we've talked about you know, the idealization of the countryside as the countryside of where you're going to be closer to, to God or the, or the gods. And uh, Titurus throws into this the city of Rome. Very early in the poem. Very early in the poem as uh, not something to be avoided, but as something alluring, something attractive, something that's responsible for his own freedom. Correct. And something that is so massive, it, it crowds out the pastoral landscape. Ah, Yeah. So he says, uh, continuing with Klein, I considered pups like dogs, kids like their mothers. I used to compare the great with the small. This is like an epic simile, right, here in Dactylic Examiner. But this city, Rome, indeed has lifted her head as high among the others as cypress trees are accustomed to do among the weeping willows. More trees. More trees. More trees. Are cypress trees accustomed to do that? They're very, very tall. Yeah. These, are, these are the ones, you know, that line the Tuscan landscape. They look like they have been manicured. Yes. Right? Those big kind of umbrella-like. Yes. Oh, those, those are wonderful trees. They're gorgeous. Yeah. So they tower above the willows, just like Rome towers above all other cities. And here the rustic Titurus, he realizes he's made a very serious miscalculation. Yeah, Rome's a big city in the way that an adult dog is a big puppy. And no, it's not like that. He thought it would be like kind of his, his hometown. Right. Right. But Just bigger, like, but no. no. Right. So here Virgil, he's doing something that Theocritus does not do or, or did not do. You don't see the celebration of Alexandria. No. In Theocritus's poems, Alexandria is just where Theocritus is, is doing his his work, where he's getting his patronage. But it's not this this shining light of of celebration. Like, like so, Rome becomes kind of this mythic city on a hill. It does. Yeah. And here we see that Virgil has not only taken a Greek theme and appropriated it, but he has improved on it. Right. He has embellished it and taken it in a creative direction. So then Meliboeus asks Titurus right here, uh, line twenty six, "Why did you go to see Rome?" And the first word of the next line is libertas. Libertas, freedom. Freedom, yes. Can you read some of the Klein translation, please? Sure. So Titurus says, Liberty that gazed on me, though late in my idleness, when the hairs of my beard fell whiter when they were cut, gazed yet and came to me after so long a time, when Amaryllis was here and Galatea had left me. Since while Galatea swayed me, I confess, there was never a hope of freedom or thought of saving. Hmm. So what's really interesting to me then is Virgil 
through the mouthpiece of Titurus, which I think is a fair identification, says he went to Rome and he got freedom from Octavian. Now, there is a, uh, an odd thing to consider, right? We think of Roman emperors as tyrannical brutes. Certainly right. Nero and Caligula earned that title. Sure. But Virgil says of Octavian, he gave me freedom. Yes. Late in life, I didn't enjoy it until now. Hope of freedom and the retention of my property, saving. Yes. And, and then beyond that, he mentions Amaryllis and Galatea, the same Galatea that saw with the Polyphemus episode, right? And so he seems to be saying that, you know, the attractions of, of love um, no longer have a hold on him. Right. Rome is bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And poetry in particular. Poetry, yes. Now he's free to pursue poetry. We have a quote here from Wormel again, don't we, which really captures this well. All right, yeah, I'll read that. Behind Eclogues 9 and 1, there lies an intensely painful personal experience. It is plain that after the Perusian War, Cremona was punished by the confiscation of much of her territory, and that Mantua also suffered when Cremona's resources proved insufficient. It is clear that Virgil's farm was threatened. He appealed to Octavian. The outcome seems to have been to leave a three-mile strip around Mantua, in which Virgil's farm fell, undisturbed, while the rest of the confiscations were confirmed. Hmm. So everyone lost their territory, but Virgil and the little town of Mantua was protected by Octavian because Virgil was a great poet. Yeah. So this is one of those places where we can mine his poetry for a little uh, biographical uh, information. Absolutely. Does that appeal to you? Does that resuscitate, rehabilitate Virgil's reputation, or does he still strike you somewhat as opportunistic? Well, I mean, I think it's in some ways it's unavoidable, right? It's uh, in terms of making a living uh, as a poet, this is what he has to do. If there was no Augustus, would we even be able to read Virgil today? No. It's, it's kind of a, it's a necessary evil. I think it's just, it's a, it's kind of the sycophantic okay. nature of it. It makes me a little bit uneasy. Do you but. remember when Alexander sacked the city of Thebes? Uh, I wasn't there personally. I don't mean but personally, <laughs> but you remember that he did. I do, yes. One house he spared in the city of Thebes, and that is the house of Pindar. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, right. the, the poet Pindar, of course, Pindar was long dead, a couple centuries, but the house had to stand as a monument because it belonged to Pindar. It seems like there's a similar thing happening here. Yes, yeah, so because of his poetic uh, ability, he gets the special favor. Correct. Mm. So then there's a little bit more of this back and forth between the two poets, and then Titurus praises the youth, the UNM, whom we know is Octavian. Yes. So again, Klein here. Titurus says, what could I do? I could not be rid of my bondage elsewhere or find God so ready to help me. There, Meliboyas, I saw that youth for whom our altars smoke for six days twice a year. There he was first to reply to my request. Slave, go feed your cattle as before. Rear your bulls. Yeah, so here is Octavian speaking to Titurus or to Virgil and saying, I'm going to protect your property. You're free to pursue poetry. And as Wormel says, the only liberty that meant anything to Virgil was the liberty to write his poetry. And what Titurus is implying here is surely that Octavian offered Virgil protection and patronage. All right, so all well and good for Titurus, but Meliboeus is still having trouble here. Yes, he is. Yeah, so Meliboeus talks later in the poem, lines 70 and 71, as we get near the end, about how there is a, a Miles, a soldier, and a barbarous, a savage, and they're running through his cornfield. They're still threatening confiscation of his property. So Titurus has identified with Octavian, but the Italian landscape is still not completely safe. Right, right. 
Octavian doesn't have complete control. Yes, exactly right. So we're still, like you said, we're still a number of years away from him um, winning the these civil wars. Correct. Yeah. Ironically, the Republic isn't completely dead. Yeah. Until it is, poetry can't be safe. All right, we are running out of time here. There's a, there's a polka band that wants to get into the vomitorium here. <laughs> Why did we rent that? Did they pay their deposit? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll check the books. But uh, we're getting to the end here. So... Um, Dave, I know you love these closing lines of of this of Eclog One. I do. They're so beautiful. Why don't you read them in Latin and then also translate them for us? I would love that. So here are lines 79 through 83. Hic tamen hanc me cum poteras requiescere noctem, franda super viridis und nobis mitia poma, castaneae moles et pressi copia lactis, etiam summa procul vilardrum cumena fumant, maior res quecadunt altis de montibus umbrae. And, and what does that translate to? Well, this is Klein's translation. Okay. And he says, Yet you might have rested here with me tonight on green leaves. We have ripe apples, soft chestnuts, and a wealth of firm cheeses. And now the distant cottage roofs show smoke, and longer shadows fall from the high hills. Oh, that's really nice. So evocative yeah. of, a, of a Tuscan villa perched on a hillside looking down into the landscape. So it, it ends with Ditteris inviting Meliboeus kind of into this. That's right? brilliant, exactly. Yeah. Come into the safety and security of the pastoral landscape, the security that Octavian has granted me. Yeah. And Jeff, you have a final quote for us from Wormel, which puts a cap on some of these themes. Yes, he writes, From Hesiod onwards, the ancients had been familiar with the idealized picture of a remote age of peace, plenty, and rustic simplicity. When the gods mingled freely with men who did not need the protection of walled cities, the similarity between this picture and Virgil's idyllic pastoral world leaps to the eye. It may seem natural to merge and blend the two, as Virgil did. Hmm. So he see it here um, again, going back to the very beginnings of of, of Greek poetry. He also t- he talks about the, the this golden age uh, where again uh, the gods. Uh, and human beings living together in peace and harmony. Almost as equals. Almost as equals. Sharing meals, sharing interests. Right. And what's the world like? It's, it's, it's all nature. Yeah. It's pure nature. And Virgil's trying to give us a picture of that, a picture that has been secured by Octavian's warring. It's, it's highly conflicted, isn't it? It is highly conflicted, but he's, he's, finding a way of, he's finding a place for Rome in that idyllic landscape. And poetry. And poetry. So we're going to wrap this up then. Yes. And uh, we'd like to ask listeners to subscribe, leave a review on your favorite uh, podcast site, leave a review at Apple, iTunes, the different places. Send us an email. You can send it to dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or jeff at adnauseum.com. We'd love to hear from you. And next week, we I believe we are beginning a first of uh, a multi-parter on uh, Homer's Odyssey. Yes, right. some thirty-seven different episodes we're going to cover. Mean, this is uh, we can't we can't tell the listener how many it's going to be because it's such a huge subject. Yes, yeah. one we love and know well. Yes, and maybe interrupted occasionally by some guest hosts. Yes, well we're gonna, we got to see how it goes. We have some great ones lined up as we already mentioned. That's right. So uh, Dave, you've got our gustatory parting shot this week. Yes, I do. This is from Robert Byrne. Anybody who believes that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach flunks geography. (laughs) Love it. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.